Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the large-format black-and-white photographs of Clyde Butcher document Florida's natural environment. People are shocked that Florida's still here. You know, you think about Disney World and Orlando and Miami, and they think it's gone. A lot of Florida's still here. You just have to, it's a little harder to get to. We'll discuss Jacksonville in the 1880s. Because of its location on the St. Johns River, it became a shipping mecca. So a lot of goods were coming in and out of the state via the St. Johns River, and Jacksonville became the center of that commerce. And we'll talk with Central Florida resident and dedicated feminist Judith Kaplan. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The large-scale black-and-white photographs of Clyde Butcher are currently on display at Fusner Art Museum in the historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida, as well as Butcher's own Big Cypress Gallery on Tamiami Trail, the Venice Gallery and Studio, and St. Armand's Gallery in Sarasota. Clyde Butcher's work is often compared with that of environmentalist and photographer Ansel Adams, best known for his images of the American West. While both men focus on large-scale black-and-white photographs, Clyde Butcher documents the natural Florida. The main reason we do black-and-white is because of the colors are so vibrant. You can't see the image. I ask people a question, would you rather have oxygen or water? I say, well, what do you mean? I'm going to have both. So what black-and-white does, it makes the oneness of nature. So nothing is more important than anything else. It's all variations of uh, whites, blacks, and grays. So the trees, the flowers, the sky, the water, it's all the same importance. And nature, without the whole system, doesn't work. And I think the black and white brings a um, reflection of that in the work. So you can actually see the landscape. You don't see the color. Another striking aspect of Clyde Butcher's photographs is their size. Some images are as large as six feet by nine feet. What people like to see, their eyes like to see the detail. If they see a, a, a blade of grass, they, they like to see the veins in the greater glass, blade of glass. And another reason I use a large format camera to make the pictures large. Now, the reason I make them large is so you can't see them. People go, what, what do you mean? That doesn't make any sense. Well, you're supposed to stand real close to my pictures. You're supposed to, like a, a seven foot picture, you should be three and a half feet away. That's the same angle as the lens was. And when you stand there, you're in the same perspective the camera was. And what you have to do then is to scan the picture. 
people don't realize they can only see about four degrees. So if you're, when you're in nature, you're scanning, you're looking around, and you're putting this whole scene of nature together in your mind. And that's the same feeling I want you to get looking at a photograph, is being there. And if you try to see it as a one composition, you're not gonna feel like you're there. And I'm trying to put people into that scene. Uh, and a lot of people don't wanna to get to some of these places. They don't mind the air conditioning, <laughs> you know, nice lights. So it basically it's a way of getting people into the pictures. Is, and then if you have it large, you have to have the detail of the film to get that feeling. Of, it's, it's a sort of philosophical concept. Clyde Butcher often waits hours or even days to capture the perfect image of Florida's natural environment, sometimes standing waist deep in swamp water. Butcher describes capturing a five foot by seven foot photograph called the Cigar Orchid Pond. There was basically three things. Uh, the light had to be right, the resurrection ferns had to be up, and there had to be no wind. I've been working on this scene for about four years, and it's about a two and a half to three hour hike through the swamp to get to this scene. I can't tell you how many times I've been there. And finally, I got the right conditions. And it was ended up being, actually it was only about a four minute exposure, it was a quickie. One <laughs> of the problems with long exposures when you're in the swamp, there's mud. If you lean one side, if you were trying to stand perfectly still for four minutes, not even shifting your weight, if you shift your weight in the swamp, it moves the tripod. So when I do those shots, I have to actually lay in the water, so I'm not physically on the mud. So that's kind of interesting. But it's also cooler that way too because the water is about 80 degrees, and it's 95 degrees outside or 90 degrees, so it's actually a way of keeping cool. <laughs> Many of Butcher's images have a three-dimensional quality. For example, some contain clouds that look as if they might float right out of the photograph toward the viewer. Well, the three dimensions is basically also using the wide-angle lens and being able to walk people back. I mean, my first wide-angle lens I bought was a Flectigon in 1960. 20 millimeter. first wide angle reflex lens came in the country for an exacta. So I've been working with wide angle ever since 1960. So I've learned to work and, and be able to create these spaces. Uh, it's hard to explain, but you have foreground, middle ground, back middle ground. So you're basically using the elements in a photograph to walk people back. And that gives, and then the, the wide angle gives the feeling of being there over your head. Butcher's photographs contain empty spaces, which seem to invite the viewer to participate in Florida's natural environment. Here, Butcher refers to an image of a deserted beach with palm trees near the shore. Like this one here, the center of that picture, there's nothing. So you can walk into it. It's not blocking you out. I, I try as best I can to do that. A lot of times that doesn't work because it's a different element composition. But really the successful ones are the ones that actually the center, the center of the picture is nothing. And in most photography, you're taught the center of the picture should be the center of interest. And actually, it is a center of interest. It's the open space. <laughs> in her 1947 book, The Everglades, River of Grass, writer and environmental activist Marjorie Stoneman Douglas describes the Everglades in romantic terms. Clyde Butcher spends a lot of time photographing the Everglades and shares Douglas's passion for this unique natural environment. It is a river of grass. 
people don't understand that, that in the summertime that water's cooking through there. You think of a swamp, you think of a New Jersey swamp where it's a stagnant place. The Everglades is an absolutely gorgeous, clean water running. For some reason you call it a swamp, I guess, there's some designation, but it's more of a river. And it's, I've been through a lot of places in the United States and, and a little bit around the world. It's a unique place. I mean, people in Florida don't know what they have here. It's uh, gorgeous. Butcher hopes that his photographs will inspire people to preserve Florida's natural environment. From his Big Cypress Gallery, Butcher periodically leads swamp walks into the Everglades. We started our gallery in 93. And in 1994, we started doing, and Labor Day, we started doing swamp walks. Uh, the first year we did, I think it was 12 or 13 people. Uh, the last major one we did was 1,000. And we talked to a lot of people, and just, I don't know how many people we've taken through the swamp. Probably not a lot, maybe 7,000, 8,000 people, maybe. And those people have become ambassadors. When you walk through the Big Cypress and you see how pristine it is and how clean it is and how beautiful it is, those people are telling other people. And I've had a lot of politicians say, you know, for some reason people are really getting into Big Cypress and Fakahatchee. I said, that's because they're getting into it physically. And that's how you really get people turned on to an unknown environment, is get them in touch with it. And that's what we've been doing. People who don't want to physically visit the Everglades on one of Butcher's swamp walks can still feel connected to that environment through his photography. I've been doing shows all over the country with this. I mean, it's not just uh, Florida. Uh, to save the Everglades, we're going to have to have other people from the country want to save it too. Because if you're going to use federal money, there's uh, 100 senators, 400 some representatives. All those people have to be excited about it. Everybody knows about Yosemite and Yellowstone and that sort of thing, but how many people know about Big Cypress and Everglades? Uh, not a lot. So it's quite a challenge. Clyde Butcher's photography has earned him many awards and accolades, including being inducted into the Florida Artists Hall of Fame in 1998. That was pretty neat. Yeah, that was pretty neat. Uh, Governor Childs was uh, governor then, and, and he was a big fan. He He was a hunter and he got back in the woods and he, he knew the, the real Florida. Uh, he was an interesting character. I liked him. Viewers will notice that Clyde Butcher's photographs don't include people, which gives the images a timeless quality. One of the main reasons I don't put people in the pictures is because if someone there is there, they're taking your space. And I guess that historically, it's, you, you, if you're wearing a certain kind of clothes, it would put a time frame on it. I did a project back in the 80s, uh, late 80s, for the Florida Historical Museum in Tallahassee. Did a whole traveling show for them. I brought the show up there and delivered it to them. And they looked at it and they said, did your father do this, or your grandfather? I said, what do you mean? I said, this stuff doesn't exist today, does it? I said, well, this picture I took two months ago. Really? I mean, people are shocked that Florida is still here. You know, you think about Disney World and Orlando and Miami, and they think it's gone. A lot of Florida is still here. You just have to, it's a little harder to get to. The large-scale black and white images of Clyde Butcher are currently on display at Fusner Art Museum in the historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida, 
as well as Butcher's own gallery on Tamiami Trail, the Venice Gallery in Studio, and St. Armand's Gallery in Sarasota. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, and subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. You can also make plans to join us for the Florida Historical Society Caribbean Conference Cruise, May 16th through 23rd, 2020. We'll be exploring cultural and historical connections between Florida and the Caribbean with fascinating onboard presentations and special tours in San Juan, Puerto Rico, St. Thomas, and Grand Turk. Registration information is at myfloridahistory.org. Composer Frederick Delius studied music in Jacksonville and wrote the Florida Suite in the 1880s. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, Jacksonville is a big city in Florida today, and it was a relatively big city in the 1880s as well. Yeah, that's right, Ben. After the Patriot War and the War of 1812, settlers began moving into an area that was really a crossing of the St. John's River. It was a ford in the river, and they called it Cow Ford. And that evolved into the city of Jacksonville. They started platting out Jacksonville shortly after the U.S. acquired the Florida Territory in 1821. And from then on, it just grew tremendously. Because of its location on the St. John's River, it became a shipping mecca. So a lot of goods were coming in and out of the state via the St. John's River, and Jacksonville became the center of that commerce. So around that commerce grew this tremendous city. And then after the Civil War, 1860s, 1870s, and as you said, in the 1880s, Jacksonville became the gateway to Florida's tourism destinations. So if you came by rail from anywhere throughout the Midwest, throughout the northeastern part of the United States, you stopped in Jacksonville. And then from there, you could travel south to St. Augustine, eventually down to what would become Miami and these resort towns in in South Florida. So the population was growing uh, and reflecting that growth. In fact, looking at the 1925 state census for the state of Florida, they have have a chart showing Jacksonville's growth from their first census back in 1850. And in 1850, the population was just over 1,000 people. By 1880, it was almost 8,000 permanent residents in the city. 
by the turn of the century, 1900, there were 28,429 people, which doesn't sound like a lot, but for the total population of Florida, which was under a million people, I mean, that's that's quite a few people living in the metropolitan area of Jacksonville. And then by 1925, there were about 95,400 people living in and around Jacksonville. And this is after 1901, when they had a tremendous fire that destroyed a large portion of the city, the population continued to grow. And again, it was because of that strategic place in, in northeast Florida on the St. Johns River. Now, you have here from the Florida Historical Society archive several documents relating to late 19th century Jacksonville, including a a city directory. Yeah, that's right. The first artifact that we're looking at, this is actually the oldest city directory that we have in the entire collection, and it's Webb's Jacksonville Consolidated Directory from 1886. And you can see it's a fairly large book. It's like three inches wide. And unfortunately, it's in pretty poor shape. The cover's falling apart. We've had to do some some basic conservation work. But because it's so big, it covers not only Jacksonville, but much of the entire state, St. Augustine, Gainesville, Orlando, Tampa, Fernandina, Leesburg, Simi and their suburbs. So all of those directories are included in this one compendium. So it's really a very comprehensive volume. So everywhere outside of even West Florida and the furthest parts of Southern Florida in 1886, if you lived in Florida, you're included in this book. So it's a tremendous resource for anybody doing any kind of genealogical research or even just trying to track down a single individual and where they move throughout Florida. You can find that information in this book. And Webb's Jacksonville Directory started publication in 1876. The first volume came out in 1876, was published every two years up until the end of the 19th century. So one of the last volumes came out in the 1890s, just before that 1901, Great Fire in 1901. And included in the directory is a description of the state of Florida, but more detail about the history and development of Jacksonville itself. So the author, or the compiler, as he calls himself, Wanton S. Webb, went into great detail to try and sell Florida which was very common with a lot of these types of publications. It was all about boosting the notoriety of the state, trying to encourage industry to move down to Florida. And he also wanted to make a little bit of money, so he sold advertisements. So there are tons and tons of these one-page advertisements for everything from undertakers to newspapers to lumber operations, anything you wanted. If you were in Florida in 1886, you would pick up one of these directories and you could find what you wanted. But I wanted to read quickly just a uh, description. This is from his overall description description of the city of Jacksonville. He talks a little bit about what life is like and what the character of the city is like. And he says here, up to the hour of 10 in the morning, the occupants of the large hotels are scarcely seen. Breakfast over, they turn towards Bay Street for a shopping and a promenade from the Everett House to the Charlton, nearly a mile. During these morning hours, one meets the representatives of every northern and western state and many southerners, while representatives of foreign climes are found quite generally. The many bazaars, curiosity shops, and stores are thronged with well-dressed tourists on pleasure bent. (laughs) The representatives of New York and London clubs, titled parsonages, money kings, literary celebrities, dowagers and their handsome daughters, bridal cuppers and bohemians jostle each other in the round of pleasure. From 3 to 5 p.m., this scene is repeated, the height of the season being in March. In the evening, life on the streets, like Saratoga, is unknown. The guests of the St. James, Everett, Windsor, the Carlton, and the Grand View enjoy themselves in their respective caravans. So they mentioned the St. James Hotel. The St. James was the largest building in Jacksonville at the time. It was built just after the Civil War. And one of the other artifacts that I pulled from the collection is 
a menu from the St. James Hotel, and this is dated March 22nd, 1882. So if you were visiting, you would have enjoyed starting off your meal with tomato soup. You'd then move on to some boiled bass. You'd have a loin of veal or ribs of beef with a dish of gravy, as it's described here, mashed potatoes. You can also enjoy tenderloin of beef saute with onions. And then to finish off with frosted pound cake or orange cake, Philadelphia ice cream, which was a real specialty, they say here. And they also have a long wine list. You can get champagne from anywhere in the world. Under ales and porters, they're advertising a St. Louis lager for only 40 cents. So it was uh, quite a time to be staying in Jacksonville and to kind of be enjoying this, like I said, a, really a metropolitan city in the, in the American South in the 1880s. Well, Jacksonville is a racially diverse city today, and that was true in the late 19th and early 20th centuries as well. In fact, there was a, a thriving African-American community there, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Ben, especially in the 1880s up through the turn of the century, a period that we now refer to as the Great Migration, when a lot of African-Americans were moving from these rural areas throughout the South to larger cities. And we generally think of them moving to northern cities like Detroit, Chicago, New York, places like that. But there are a lot of African-Americans moving to cities like Jacksonville, seeking opportunity, seeking, you know, a lot of these people were emancipated slaves or the sons and daughters of former slaves who were looking for opportunity in a very difficult climate in the South. I mean, this was right in the middle of the, the Jim Crow era. So within Jacksonville, the way that the African American population really went around that was that they developed their own industries. So because everything was segregated in Jacksonville, even cemeteries were segregated at that time, they developed their own businesses. There was a very successful and burgeoning middle and upper class of African Americans that lived within the Jacksonville communities. They had their own neighborhoods, their own school systems, again, their own cemeteries, and they kind of developed their own identity within the larger context of the Jacksonville city environment. Great. Well, this is really interesting. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. To see the Jacksonville City Directory we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. I am woman, hear me roar In numbers too big to ignore And I know too much to go back and pretend Central Florida resident Judith Kaplan is counted among feminists who changed America. She spoke with Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. Judith Kaplan is an activist, a feminist, and a longtime Florida resident. Originally from the Bronx, New York, she's called Florida home since 1980. 
Judith Kaplan now lives in the Orlando area with her husband Warren, who she married in 1958. Judith Kaplan's contributions to women's history are highlighted in the 2006 book by Barbara Love called Feminists Who Changed America, 1963-1975, a comprehensive directory that documents the founders and leaders of the second wave women's movement. I recently talked to Judith Kaplan about her life, her activism, and her legacy. I grew up in the Bronx, New York, where I was born in Bronx, New York, and lived there in a small apartment with my father, my mother, two sisters, and a brother, and in one bedroom, one bathroom apartment. So that was kind of tight, but we managed. Even when I was very young, I recognized when you were learning in school, you didn't hear about any women, maybe Eleanor Roosevelt and Amelia Earhart, but that was it. Of course, you heard about George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. So I recognized that there was, not, there was an inequality. And so I started to collect women's history, particularly famous women like Abigail Adams and Eleanor Roosevelt. And, and so I developed a collection focusing on suffrage. Between 1976 and 1980, Judith Kaplan created and produced the Women's History series of First Day Covers by the National Organization for Women. Her collection of First Day Covers recognizes and honors the contributions and achievements of women to the history of the United States by commemorating them on U.S. postage stamps. Judith Kaplan. Warren was a stamp collector, so I would go to stamp shows and show me, oh, look at this, isn't this nice? Look at the perforations, how perfect they are, and stuff like that. I think, he's crazy. Um, so I, I kind of, after following him for a while on it, I saw a, a box which had some first-day covers in it, something about first-day covers, which are envelopes canceled on the first day a new stamp came out, and collectors could collect it on the envelope. And also companies and people illustrated the, the envelope to tie it up with the subject. And so I started to do that. I get a new stamp, get the stamps. They were, you know, three cents, I guess, six cents a stamp. Get an envelope, get a picture. That was the hard part. Especially, you don't have a lot of pictures of women. So I started to collect women's history on first day covers. So I started kind of collecting those. And eventually, I started making a whole series of, of my own. Judith Kaplan, a graduate of Hunter College in New York, has also been a successful businesswoman. In 1977, she founded a company that specialized in nonviolent educational toys. In 1995, she managed a women's professional baseball team called the Orlando Orange. Judith Kaplan is also a nationally recognized artist. She developed her style of abstract expressionism in art classes at the Maitland Art Center and the Crealdi School of Art in Winter Park. I never was an artist. Coloring books with Crayola was about my speed. Suddenly, I decided to take a class. So I started to paint. I attended Maitland Art Center and the Crealdi School of Art. Um, I became a member of the Women's Caucus for Art and the Orlando Museum of Art. Judith Kaplan began collecting women's history memorabilia in the 1960s. Her collection grew to include letters, documents, first day covers, postcards, artwork, and over 700 books and 44 periodicals related to the history of women, with many items from the 19th and 20th century women's suffrage movement. Her women's history memorabilia collection is now housed in the Judith and Warren Kaplan collection at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. Judith Kaplan has spent her life researching and documenting women's history to ensure that the knowledge of women's contributions and achievements are preserved for future generations. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, 
public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society, and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen as a podcast. Find us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.